Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, so it was, you know, we say you know, cat and mouse games, but it was, you know, very often you'd come back and you would have a, a 7.62 nice little hole straight through the back of your G-Wagon and out the other side without you even knowing it. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. In October of 2022, I was asked by the West Pennines Military Vehicle Trust to moderate a question and answer session with a number of Bricksmiths veterans. Attending were drivers Neil Walton, Pete Curran, Dave Collins and Kev Smith, plus Sandy Saxton Warren, Joint Operations and Weapons, Mike Hill, Tour Officer, Mike Corcoran, Weapons, and Dave Butler, Senior Tour Officer. It was an amazing afternoon of reminiscing about their experiences and viewing the amazing collections they had from that time. Don't miss part two that follows next week. My good friend Colin Deiter helped with the complex recording of this session, but a quick note that the audio is not up to the usual quality of Cold War conversations due to background noise, but I think... The events and activities described definitely make it worth listening to. Thank you. The Cold War conversation continues in our vibrant Facebook discussion group and on Twitter. Just search for Cold War Conversations on Facebook and we're at Cold War Pod on Twitter. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, I'm Aid Brandt, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially, quite simply because it's the best history podcast out there, and I want to make sure it continues. Keep going, Ian, and thank you. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome seven Brigsmith veterans to our Cold War conversation. Uh, so, should we start with you, Pete? Yeah. Good afternoon. My name is Peter Curran. I was a tour driver with Brigsmith from 1988 to the close of the mission in 1990. You were RAF, weren't you, Yeah, RAF. Yeah, Kevin Smith, I was Army uh, tour driver of Brooks, Brooks Miss, 88 to 90 as well, uh, up to the closing day. 
a Sunday one. Um, I wasn't a driver. I worked in the uh, weapons and the joint operations side of things. Um, I was the only woman who worked through the grill with all the guys. So they looked after me really, really well. Uh, and I was there from 89 to 91. Neil Walton, um, I was fortunate enough to get there because it was one of the drivers I had an accident to buy earlier and then later. And um, I got there in December um, 89, just after the wall had been breached um, and then stayed up until we became Joint Intelligence Service in 91. And then I left in 92, so 90 to 92, the last tour driver. Uh, Dave Collins, uh, Army tour driver, uh, 88 to 90. Bricksmith came about as a, as a, as a thing called the Robertson Mellinson Agreement, okay, which was, uh, it's basically all the powers, uh, the superpowers, uh, after they've defeated Germany after the Second World War. As you know, what happened is there was build-up of forces, yeah, so all the powers agreed to, uh, through this Robertson Mellinson Agreement, which I don't know too well, but effectively it allowed, yeah, all the powers, including the Russians, yeah, to be present in each of their sectors. The French, the Americans, and ourselves toured, yeah, in East Germany that was occupied by the Soviet forces. Yeah, it did not recognize, uh, East German forces. Yes, yeah, so the NVA, National Bolts Army, yes, did recognize it all. So we were in a privileged position at the time. So we could, for example, be on tour. Yeah. And we could be speedy. Yeah. As we sometimes did, sometimes, very, very seldom we did. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the box bullet side would try to, uh, you know, stop us. And we'd just literally, you know, wave at them. And they were there in the little Wartburgs and their little Trabants and uh, tried to stop a G-Wagon of weeds, just short of three ton that was armoured up to the eyeballs. And, uh, yeah. Extra it was, fuel tanks. Yeah, it was extra fuel tanks and all the other bits of equipment that we can go into. You know, later on, if you wish. Yeah. So that was the, that was the basis. And then, uh, I suppose all the in between is stuff I'm sure we'll be talking about later, but at the end, yeah, when the wolf came down, <laughs> the result of perestroika in Glasnost, yeah, uh, it, the Royce Malison agreement failed to exist. So it was literally overnight. And, uh, I suppose one of my stories that I'd, I'd tell is the, uh, is the night that we received that phone call. And I was pops and dude rare at the time. And I went down to Checkpoint Bravo to pick up the, uh, commander in chief, uh, of the officers and also the French general. So then we met at the Glinica Bridge for a closing down ceremony. And it was literally as fast as that. Uh, nobody knew about it. I mean, I was on tour where, when it all came out and we couldn't, you know, this spy, the bridge of spies as it's referred to now, yeah, uh, where Gary Powers and his, and his, and was in the U2 spike lane was shot down. Uh, obviously, left hand side going over, yeah, it was for mission personnel, and the right hand side was the diplomat. Yeah, and I was a, the last remaining sort of soldier, if you like. And Bricks was here, was a privilege to be there that night. So, and there's a few photographs in my not as good as Neil's uh, or uh, souvenirs, but uh, yeah, they're good memories. But the whole yeah. role of being there was that it was before the days of satellite. Uh, it was basically people on the ground. Mm. And it would be, if the Russians were coming, we would raise the flag and say they're coming. Yeah. yeah. And it was basically, so we were human intelligence on the ground 
I think not just BRICS miss, as we said, it was the French, there was the American mission, but we were the biggest mission. When they actually did the Robertson Millennium Agreement, we got the bigger percentage of individuals and we were about twice the size of the French and Americans. Something like that. Well, eight and four. <laughs> the French ended up with, with the least. Mm. Um, so, and it was, it was basically the guys that go out on paths. Uh, we were, as, as Ken just said, there were so many passes that were allocated out. It's, it meant that not everybody was in East Germany at the same time. People were actually, we were based in West Berlin, uh, where the Olympic Stadium is. Uh, that's where we were accommodated. We lived, married quarters were there. Uh, we did have a house in Potsdam, which was the mission house. It's still there. Uh, we don't own it anymore. We never owned it. It was, it was loaned to us from the German government. Uh, and Herr Duke bought it when it went to auction after Duke, the designer, Duke, the aftershave guy. Uh, he bought it up until recent, and he sold it recently. Um, but yeah, the, the guys would have pass and there would be a, a driver. Uh, there would be a tour NCO and a tour officer that would go out on tour and it could be an air tour or it could be an army tour. And that's how we were in the dual service. We were, it, it's one of the only units that was pure army and RAF. We had one Navy guy. He arrived, but then the top part of Germany, which where we had the coast, then went to TRA. So we couldn't go anymore. So there was no point. But he, he bimbled around, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so the tours would go out and there would be intelligence gathering missions allocated. And that's part of the job I did there would be allocations right we've got intel that there's this go and have a look but obviously it was you'd go out for how many days at a time it could be yeah three four five six but as I said to Sandy coming this morning swinging the lamp as you do um I remember on a tour my very first tour with a guy called Captain Tim Townley rest him mm. he's dead uh and I we ran into a Warsaw packed exercise and literally we were extended for 12 days because it wasn't restricted area when we went in, so but they used to impose what they used to call a temporary restricted area. Yeah. Um, so we were that, in that area because we had no communications. Australia. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we were just extended. So the only communication we had was a bleeper. You'll see one over right. there. Well, actually, a real one that we had then. That was it. The beeper used to go off. We'd have to go to a phone, an East German phone, and call in. We had different code words. Op radiator was a breakdown, wasn't it? Yeah. So you'd have a breakdown. uh, um, But op radiator didn't actually mean a breakdown. It meant that there was kit out there. So they would then send another T. So you'd bring, um, if there was a breakdown, you'd bring another G-Wagon on the back of a trailer. So there was a little model over there of a trailer with one on the back. That's So we used to do different juvies. So we had the juvie driver, which Kev's alluded to, he was on that night, which is a white van. We've seen a white picture of the white van on the side there. It's a little van we used to drive around in it with a caddy Volkswagen. Yeah. Then we had the senators. Um, then we had the, the G-Wagons as well. Guys before I got there had um, the Range Rovers and that would be quite oh, a lot contested out there. The G-Wagons yeah. by far the best, weren't they, for for um, not local, the senators were better for local. So that meant that we weren't going to go on deep tack routes, so we didn't need full rally spec, which we had. We had them both vehicles, but you would you would be able to get along Satsko and ramp in in the, in the senator. You'd have to go in a G wagon, and even then, officers still managed to get us bogged in when we'd say it, it's too wet. We're not going in there, boss. And they'd go, Yeah, yeah, I want to go in there. And you go, Well, tourist rules. If it's a new officer, and they said, What do you mean tourist rules? Well, if we get bogged in, you get out, get the turf, a winch out, and everything else. And that's what we did. They put it back to front, so you'd have to go out and help them. 
and get money anyway, things like that. But like Sandy says, we had no communications. So, um, it, it, it was, uh, it was, and, and as soon as you made a phone call anyway, the stars, he had all the phone networks done. So they'd be, they'd be, it'd be a, a, a race to come. There was one interesting night we broke down, um, uh, at Finsterbound on top of a, of a big bund and we were watching there at nighttime, watching them loading onto, um, a railings near Finsterbound it was, uh, which was a, an air, an air place. And they were loading this kit on and then we finished what we were doing. It was dark. And then they said, right, on, on we go then. It wouldn't start just for no reason. Batteries were not left on or nothing else just wouldn't go. And we got, it's not kicking over. It wouldn't start over. And we're at the top of this sort of 40 meter, really steep bond. No communications. I was with John Buchan at the time. And, um, and they got out and I said, well, you get out and I'll just have to put it in neutral and just go back. Whatever he breaks or whatever he's steering, we'll just have to go down and let it, it goes down at the bottom there, but there's a railway hut. So you'll have to go down and chat to the railwayman, otherwise he'll run over and tell them what's going on. So they went down, chatted up the railwayman. I went down like that, holding on to this, and it looked like a fire break. So if you'd gone over, you'd have tipped over like so just held it steady, off we went. We did training for that kind of stuff anyway. So we did it up in Teufelberg, didn't we? Yeah. And um, they used to take us up that. Got I got over there and then John had to hitch a ride with a with a railwayman into PRA, permanent restricted area. And, uh, and make a phone call to get us recovered in that. There's got to be, uh, not just for that, but on the end of that as well. So I think from a background perspective as well, it could be useful for you to, to see one of the maps, what we used to call the PRA map. Okay. Which is shades of dark orange and, and white. And basically if it was orange, it would turn to restricted area. So we knew that they'd got kit in there. Yeah. So that would be the nuclear, biological, chemical, okay. uh, and spectral forces. Yeah. All the yellow areas were and it, permanent restricted areas. Yeah, and it, it's it's also probably uh, fair to mention the fact that you know the whole of DDR, the Democratic Republic, uh, Republic all real stuff that's big stuff. It's East Germany. Yeah, you'll probably find a lot of uh, our screenshots and everything else is marked on there as well as drivers normally did. But uh, what what that area represented was our tour area. Yeah, and what we used to have. So as soon as we booked out. Yeah, at West Berlin, where we were all housed with our families. We used to go over the Glinica Bridge into the Mission House, okay, where we used to have a, the, you know, the inevitable uh, piece of pie and uh, and a coffee before we went out. Uh, and when we went out on the motorway, at various points on the motorway, bearing in mind East Germany was probably the least mapped area in Europe at the time, okay, and we used to actually do a thing called a mapping tour. So where new roads had appeared, you, you wouldn't be able to, you know, our maps were so far out of date, so we, we turn out a mapper. Uh, but at, at various points, strategic points, they used to uh, put out the MFS, yeah, which is the Ministerium for Stadtsicherheit. Now, they were the secret police. And uh, the, the people in East Germany were absolutely petrified of the MFS. Uh, whereas we literally, I mean, I could tell you some stories, but probably not for, uh, not for now, but... Um, where we used to literally, if we didn't recognize them, uh, they thought we didn't know that they were there, but we used to have a book with every single number plate. Then he got announced to change the number plate when they were following us. So, you know, the, the tour officer would say, oh, registration number, such and such, the tour, tour senior NCO would say, yeah, we've got one. And, and they would literally be, you know, there like little dummies and they didn't look at you at all. It was so, it was so bizarre. It was, uh, they'd come the other way. They'd say, they would look at you. Everybody else would look at you. 
a Mercedes T-Wagon in, in East Germany and then go, you know, some would wave at you, but the MFS would, it's really bizarre. But yeah, so, and they'd report you in. So things that we used to get up to, uh, and, and again, everybody used to, used to do it is they used to sweep, for example, on training areas, a, a, a brush of sand. So they used to know our tire tracks. So they'd know we were in the area and it would be around airfields. Yeah. Where we would camp overnight. Yeah. Near the center line. Yeah. In which to be able to, uh, we'd have a number of, uh, targets, for example. So TASMs, tactical air surface missiles or. Uh, whatever it may be, we'd be on rangers, which are very dangerous because they'd be unexploded munitions. We'd collect, you know, the remnants of any missiles that were, that were dropped by, by the MiGs and all the rest of it. So yeah. And, and, and again, the, the whole area, you know, the MFS, the East German army, not so much. Uh, I mean, they were, they were very much in the, um, you know, armed or. <laughs> I don't know, supplied with first generation Soviet equipment, like for example, the fish beds, which was in the, whatever it was, 27s, whatever it was. The oldest. And uh, the oldest planes. And uh, I'll just give you an example of that. When we was at an area now, the uh, East Germans used to practice defense, nuclear, biological and chemical warfare procedures. And one of those things is when a nuclear uh, weapon uh, ignited, so to speak, yeah, there'd be a flash. Yeah, then there'd be a period of quiet, yeah, where at this time, you know, the nuclear cloud is gathering all the dust and then, well, obviously, there's a wind. And what they used to do is uh, they used to have a big, if you remember this, guys, they used to have a big tower, yeah, yeah and they used to basically put lots and lots and lots of kerosene in there and uh, they'd be walking, doing their patrols and then somebody would light this ball, yeah, so pitch black, all of a sudden, big, that, that would replicate, uh, you know, a, a nuclear blast and they would literally crouch down and put their ponchos over their heads. Not, not that that's going to make a lot of difference when a nuclear blast mm. But, uh, I remember literally we were, uh, uh, furkling through furkling. Now that's another word that I need to explain. So furkling is basically at a speed where it was, it was walking speed, furkling through. So as not to, you know, miss anything that the Soviets might have left behind. And, uh, we were furkling through and I, I said for the tour officer at the time, and I think it was Martin, Martin Breathe, I think it was, and, uh, passing him, uh, bless him, rest in peace, Ian. And, uh, he said, what's all these potato bags doing in these fields? He went, put your bloody foot down now. So never ask questions, put your foot down. Yeah. And all these potatoes, yeah, sacks grew legs and started running after us. And it was the most <laughs> That uh, sort of things that we used to come back and say, uh, sort of, yeah. what a sign you must say there. When we went over in, over the bridge, um, we had two fuel tanks in the G wagon. So we had those special cars. So we had lights as well that you could switch and we could just have infrared. So we could see them and they'd have to need infrared to see us. Or we could put one light on the front, one light on the back. So we looked like a motorbike and we could have total blackness. We had PNGs, night vision goggles, something to drive with because it didn't really Assess debt holes. So you have to drive nine and eight. a hole. Yeah. And things like that. But also we had double fuel tanks in the G wagon. So it filled up on one. It was actually two. So it didn't have one on either side. So we didn't want them to know that. So we'd be getting followed by them fart bugs and they wouldn't do it. We had these fuel coupons. This is a brand new one. We still smell it for five years ago, mm-hmm. 1990s. Um, and, and we'd have to go and fill up the East German flats. Used to go and fill up the East German thing. So they know how much fuel we took on, but we'd always go out full anyway. Um, but 
many a time you're getting followed by an arc and then they peel off because we just go across treachery or we, they, they couldn't keep up with the fuel. The past period Sandley was on about, you used to go on past period. So this is a, the, your Russian past. You'd see all the stuff up there. But you got that and you go on, I think you used to go on 30 days at a time, wasn't it? I think you were, yeah. So you go for six off. weeks to the queue, or was it three, three, a month or three? We have the cycle. We have the three. We've, we've, it was brilliant because you got 100 Deutschmarks a night if you're on pass. So, and the drivers, we had it rough. We had to sleep inside the vehicle where all the tour NCOs and that were outside in the snow and that. We had a, what was the engine? The little heater we had, what to call it? Right, it's such late. Yeah, what was it called? The diesel heater. Um, Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It's basically oh, but it, it used to go off in the morning. You'd set that. And so we used to make a bedboard. So you had the G-Wagon and there's certain things the driver had to do when he got there. You had to make a bedboard and you had to get a pot. I've still got the curry pot. I bought that today. I've only brought what I could find quickly. But a curry pot, because um, we used to keep curries. And a bit of, a bedboard was a bit of wood. But imagine you're in your, your vehicle, all the space there, you made this board and that's what you were going to sleep on. Yeah. I think things as well with the G-Wagon, it only had three seats. Well, yeah. It had two at the front and one was central yeah. at the back. So your tour officers sat in the back of, so they could see straight through. So everybody got clear views. You can't so bags, weren't four seats. On the right, they were adopted. Yeah. Camera bags on the right, so green bag over there for yeah. all the cameras and no new telescopes and everything else. And on the left, you had all the flasks, which again, we had a special job where we had to heat all the water in the morning, didn't we? Six oh. flasks for us. And so we always had our water there and just get the brewers out whenever we could stop. So we were pretty much on the go. You were pretty much driving for, you know, for eight, nine hours, if you were with Givo. And the guy who wrote that book over there, and then we used to let you take a shortcut through PRA. And even if it was a 2Ks, you'd make you drive five hours around and that. And, you know, so depending who you were with, if they wanted to take, take the thing, but you just start hitting curbs and that, and then you get a brew because they pull over. And like, you, get, you get those, you get those instances in life where you, you reflect on, and one of the my after dinner things was when uh, I can't remember sidings, I can't remember. Uh, but basically, we used to have uh, thermal imaging equipment and uh, image intensifiers, so infrared and thermal imaging for the trains that used to go by to be able to monitor what equipment was coming in and out of East Germany at the time from Poland, et cetera, et cetera. And on this particular occasion, it was we were in a really bad area, I remember, and. Uh, he said, they just take the MVG's cab. So it was a time where we was issued the MVG Mark II's can remember. So we used to have two. The MVG Mark I was what we used to call Cyclops. And uh, that was that was really bad. Or you could see the lane in front of you, but as Neil alluded to earlier, you, you didn't get any depth. So you'd literally be, <laughs> you know, and we got the RAF. You know, the but then they got the RAF ones, which was significantly better. Uh, because we're army, we used to pay second to an RAF boot. And uh, yeah, an RAF boot, because they were more comfortable. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, to the nice, the guy said to me, he said, just take the MVGs, Kevin. Go and do your number two elsewhere. So literally, as you do, we used to get out. We used to be very careful because noise, as you know, at night travels is, is one of the key things in, in, in soldiering, if you like. You, you learn that you can hear somebody shutting the door from half a mile away. So literally, we would go click, click. Yeah. And we always had to, used to have the G-Wagon key, a spare one, on the shoelace. Yeah. Well, locked the door, went off to do, uh, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. And as I was perched against a tree doing what I did, or doing what comes naturally, I saw all these black things. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. There must have been about 12 people watching me yeah, on the toilet. Yeah, And I had to sort of like literally finish what I finished, do what you do, cover what you do, and then go back. And literally, I was, was with the chief at the time. Oh, yeah. We used to tour in the Senator as well now and again, which wasn't as comfortable as the Galinda wagon. But uh, Chief Bricksmith, who was a, a, a brigadier at the time, Brigadier Freer, and uh, I literally got in the vehicle, started it up. I mean, there was pans all around. And he said, why are you, why are you doing up a suit all over my house? And we looked behind you now, and there was 12, there was 12 MFS uh, and was filming us, filming them, if you like. Yeah, all running after the <laughs> we, So, yeah, it was real. It was real, you know, cloak and dagger, cops and robbers type stuff. And uh, I suppose one of the things that I suppose we've all been in the position where they would, you know, there's been two unfortunate uh, incidents in the mission line. A guy called Colonel Morrison, who died uh, as a result of a shooting, he came over a Soviet wall and he was shot in the back. Nicholson, sorry. It's an American. And he, uh, he basically bled out. They wouldn't, lead, they wouldn't let the driver out and administer first aid. And the other one was a guy called Moriarty, which is a French driver, and he was rammed by a Ural 375, I believe it was. Or is, they were since they tried and to get it's outside of barracks. Nobody knew why he never moved, but literally the Ural sideswiped him and, and he died. Uh, so it was, you know, we say you know, cat and mouse games, but it was, you know, very often you'd come back and you would have a, a 7.62 nice little hole straight through the back of your G-Wagon and out the other side without you even knowing it. Okay. Unless until such time you opened up your sleeping bag, which was stored in the, you know, in the, in the side in nets, uh, it happened to me on two occasions, but I know that a guy called Kev Powell, again, rest in peace, Kevin, and we were falling like flies, we are in Britons. And uh, he, he he was regularly coming in, as as were the other drivers who did the, you know, the one-offs. The one thing that we always used to get told in Brixby's is never ask, yeah, if you didn't know. And they'd say like, so we would drop them off at night, the, the tour NCO, the, the tour officer. And um, there was many times. They would say, right, I mean, you know where the ERVs are, emergency rendezvous, and we'd have two or three. So if we got spooked by the Sobs or the, the East Germans, respectively, yeah, we would uh, we would go and we would meet probably five, six hours later with the tour NCO and the tour officer, where we obviously had to make the way to the ERV uh, places. And uh, yeah, that, could, that was quite, you know, on those occasions, you never asked, but it was all about, you know, even now to this day, I've never asked. You know, what they used to get up to. A lot of the time they used to get up and they used to be on rubbish dumps looking because the Soviets were just, they just throw their stuff away. They are in Ukraine. Yeah, and uh, they are in Ukraine and they were never issued with toilet paper. So on the exercise areas when we used to visit after a Soviet um, deployment, yeah, we, the driver, obviously, we would be out the Capola cover, yeah, looking around, making sure nobody was around. 
Yeah, and the tour officer and tour, tour senior NCO would be out with rubber gloves. Okay, yeah. The, the plastic suit or whatever. I can't remember what they used to have. A Doddy suit, was it? An, an NBC suit, I think. Mm-hmm. And they would be looking in feces. Yeah, for the code codes that had been sent over the you know over the radio and decrypted and used as toilet paper because they weren't issued toilet paper. So a lot of our defence intelligence yeah, in London used to get bags and bags of feces yeah, with uh, with a lot of uncoded messages. Yeah, that saved us a lot a lot of uh, time on you know intelligence elsewhere. TA Emmanuel as well. We got a TA Emmanuel from that first time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And after what, after at the end, we can imagine what we We've did got in, in civilians in our cars oh, when they said okay. you can go out now and, and just go touring. Dave Butler, I think and, it's and Dave that's what we did. Yeah. Sort of going yeah. out and trying to get It is Dave. That's Dave. Yeah, yeah. it's Dave Butler. But we also, when we had tasks, you had to go to that, we had the Soviet external relations branch. We had to report in there when, before you were going anywhere and back. So you'd take a briefcase in really thin and you'd come out with a briefcase really fat because it was full of things that you'd swapped. So you'd go to the Polish market, get a really cheap headset and cassette player for five Deutsche marks, and you would give that to a Russian and you'd get something like this. All very small sizes, because that's all they could get out of the stores, but they're all brand new, small sizes, original Corfer Walt <laughs> written on there. So they would they would come out, wouldn't we, swap stuff, yeah. badges and boots and, and everything. So that's, you couldn't just go and get this stuff uh, as freely as you can now. There are a few people joining now, obviously, who don't live local or like we had a tour or span like we do. And top left is Mick Hill. He's actually joining us from Canada. He lives in Ontario, so he's setting his alarm clock this morning. The cold cave, top right-hand side. Uh, Mike Corcoran, he was my boss. Uh, in there, we've got Jean, bottom right. Jean was there. She was the chief's PA in the 70s. And then we've got Mr. Butloff, Dave Butloff, on the left-hand side. Dave was a, a tour senior officer and Micka was tour officer top left. That's indeed. When we watched this TV, did a big documentary. Yes. Like on the War Channel, yeah. The War Channel. And Mr. Butler, Dave Butler did that one. So obviously these guys have joined us remotely. The guys can hear us as well. I've, I've checked them, Mick. They can hear us. So do you want to start here? Uh, yes. Do you have a question for our panel? What were your favourite units? What units did you come from? Get out of the mission. Uh, well, 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 are you? I'm uh, I'll swear I have this. Namely, on fighters, jet units. So I was doing refueling and things like that on the aircraft. Royal Corps transport, we were, weren't we? Yeah. We had a staging, had a staging post called 8 Regiment RCT located in Munster, former West Germany. And uh, that was where a lot of the Vetting to top secret, which he which he needed to go to Brixmas, uh, carried out, and that staging post would last anywhere between six months and two years, as I I did two years of Fate Regiment, um, but all the drivers certainly I do uh, came from Fate Regiment to be qualified up to sergeant. So I was a lance corporal. Were you a corporal when you went? I was a full corporal. I was a lance corporal. There was three of us. Um, there was an unfortunate accident um, that got me out there because one of our drivers did a U turn. And the Trabant plane. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Did the driver die? It was. Uh, I don't think the driver died, but the Trabant died. I, I think Dave might know this, but it was. Uh, they basically took the lights off when doing a 180 on a on a uh, unfenced um, middle carriage motorway, and the, the trailer number 13 to run a recovery at the time, I believe, 
and they were doing a 180 and uh, the Trabant went into it and I believe, I believe killed these Germans. I don't know whether or not that was a kill kill tax, right? grave toppers in the, in the engine. We all know more about that. But yeah, so that's, that's what got me there because yes. uh, that driver was left the mission and that's why I'm the last one in. Yeah. It was fortunate for me, but we had to be qualified to sergeant, uh, German colloquial. So you'll see the German books <laughs> on side there. Yeah. And being a hoarder, that's all, all my original books, which is sad, isn't it? Even Pete's stuff was there as well. And, and from when we did our original re- reconnaissance course at Ashford, so you'd go on the course, you wouldn't be allowed to leave Brixmas to go on any courses because it was a, it's a full-time, um, you know, special duties, it's called not special forces, special duties role. So once we'd got there, um, you know, you had to do your sergeant's course as well. So we're going on the sergeant's course as a land corporal war one say, you can imagine that what, what we got on that course, uh, but we had to be expected to be better than anyone else, but you <laughs> have got to Brixmas anyway. So for RAF, I don't know what the RAF selection must be. It was weird. Uh, I had no idea. I'll stay in RS and seven at the time and I had job club for your orders saying asking for people to do special duties. I thought sounds interesting, so I applied. I got a clue what here about anything. And the next thing I need is fitness process started and I got groomed. They really did groom me for eight months. They went to six months. They kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And in the end, it was said, be forced to Brixmas. So fourth year. Back in the days where people were being drawn. says, no, nothing would say it. I did. Just go. I mean, this betting process was very robust. You would understand that, you know, we were uh, access to House Canucus, Australian, Canadian, UK, US, top secret material. Uh, and effectively, you know, during this betting process, they could, and I know they did, go to my old school master my next door neighbor at my mum's house to see whether or not I had any homosexual tendencies. Yeah. Or I had a flair for fast cars and good looking women and all the rest of it. Yeah. To see how vulnerable you were to, to, uh, you know, to being right back to when I was 10 and I got caught pinching a, um, a bag of raisins out of William and Lowe's shop in our growth. And they kept saying, are you in trouble with the police? Are you in trouble with the police? I don't know. They've been in trouble with the police. <laughs> think back. Think back. It was in Scotland. I had to go to a children's panel at the age of 10. Well, they came in. But it was all about that. It was because mum didn't know anything. But it was developed vetting that we had to get to. So a lot of people, when I went to Apebridge in Munster, I went there as a lad's corporal. There were a lot of corporals, which obviously two tapes, if you want to know in the army, and senior corporals who were still waiting to go to Brixmas. And they were like, well, what have you come here for? So I'm going to Brixmas. Like, yeah. So we're all them lot. And I went, no, I'm going. I'm going in October. No, they, they haven't been. I said, well, I'm on my SMQC, the Senior Military Qualification, because we just were sergeant. I'm on it in July. I've already done my army education. I did it, Belize, before I am a German speaker anyway. So I, I'm going as far as I know. Maybe you've failed your betting. And that's what it was. They never got told they failed the betting. Uh, Paul Weston was the guy, the vet officer at a, a, a registered in touch with him. And that's what he said. It, it was, but that's how we got selected. Yeah, I was at Ministry of Defence in Whitehall. I'd done two tours there. So uh, I I just, as you do when you're in the army, you put in for a posting preference. I was plumbing up about a year before I was due and I wanted to go to Berlin. I was like, I want to go to Berlin. Everybody was going, I wanted to go to Hong Kong, Cyprus. Now I want to go to Berlin. Um, and I literally, it's, it's like the guy said, I was, I was already vetted because I was working in main building in Whitehall. Um, and about eight months before I was due to go, saying, yeah, you've got Berlin. And then I'd never heard of Bricksmith. Never heard of it. As I don't think a lot of people had, unless you'd been in for a while. 
Uh, and then all I got told is keep your mouth shut for eight months and you can go. And that is a test. It was basically a test that you could keep quiet about where you were going. Um, and then that was it. I met a guy called John Boland. I don't know if he was there when you were there. John Boland, he was ex-Britomist in Northern Ireland. I was commander of the Land Forces, Coastal Protection Driver at the time, General Jeeps. He was SAS. And they were talking about Britomist and said, what would you like to do? I was, oh, you said you're a German speaker. And oh, you should get yourself to Britomist. And that's how, that's how, how I got there. But yeah. I don't know about any, can all the guys hear? I know Mike can hear. Gene, Dave, Mike, Cookie, can you all hear? Yeah. I mean, obviously, everybody's got a different story. Or what was told? We got to remember that the, you know, the organisation was it was unique in its own right. The people there were chosen specifically to do that particular job. I mean, when when I went, uh, it just opened my eyes as to how you know it changed from being a normal grunt, if you like, a normal driver, okay, driving you know fuel or whatever we did at Eight Reg, uh, to joining this unit that were literally jam-packed with specialists yeah and they were intelligent people if i may say so myself you know they uh i'm not blowing my own trumpet either they were they were good people yeah and they took their job very very seriously you know the tour officer would do their bit the tour senior NCO would do their bit and the driver had to do their bit and if you went out and you didn't have a piece of equipment you weren't staying at Bricksmith. so it was you know everybody relied on each other and you had to you had to know what your duty was inside and out the reports we got written as well by Jerry Groom, rest in peace. Yep. Absolutely. Um, you know, said you were operating in hostile um, conditions for you know, almost a whole year, sort of thing. So they, those reports, when they went back to Glasgow to records, was, wow, these are Brixmas operators. Yeah, we were drivers, but we were all operating together in a team. We were working with people who were from, we're not mentioned names, but Force Research Unit, which is where I came from, as a driver, which is a human intelligence gathering unit in Northern Ireland. So there was operators from there. There was 14 in operators. Um, there was SAS, there was SBS and, and they were a mixture. And then when we didn't even, you know, when you, when you arrived there, everyone's wearing different cap badges as well. Even the intelligence corps chaps weren't they? So, um, you know, there were, there was, there was things like that, um, going on and that, and that's what skills that they had within that unit. And because of the nature of the work that they were, that they were doing and collecting. There is, there is one interest. I don't know if anybody's read any of the books or seen the, uh, some of the photos, but there is a photo of a chap on the top of a tank and he's taking dimensions of a, I think it's a, a, a barrel. on a barrel. Yeah. yeah. BMP. Days. Two, wasn't it? Do you, do you want to explain that one? That's, that's the chap. It jumped on the top of a moving. Oh, yeah. It was a BMP two, yeah, and um, and up until that point, we had no idea what the uh, what the sort of uh, barrel size was of it, and so uh, one of the tour NCOs, uh, the train, I think, parked under a bridge, and um, he just took the opportunity to jump down, and all he had to measure the dimensions of the barrel was an apple, so he jumped on the front of the BMP two and stuffed the apple onto the front of it and what came out of course was the was the measurement of the uh, of the gun barrel and uh, yeah and it's well documented you can read about it on, on the internet and, you know and even the guy's name uh, has been published so um, but it was another one of those opportunity things that you just had to make a split second decision if you were going to do it and uh, 
The officers were only fighter pilots who could speak Russians as Russian as well, and Russian speakers as well. Um, Sandy said they sat in the middle of the back, uh, and then the tour NCO was a senior NCO or a war officer from the RAF. They were most, mostly masters, were at least master A load masters, master A engineer ops, and everything. And then the drivers were all, um, well, from a various, uh, there was radio operators, there was, um, there was stop guard drivers, there was, um, HGV drivers, everything mixed, um, close protection drivers all mixed. So it's a whole load of experience there, uh, uh, like we say, with, uh, working together and we all had to do the same recognition courses and the same photography course, um, at Ashford. Uh, so there used to be a thing called tarpology, which I know would bring a smile to a lot of people, but, uh, tarpology was basically a number of, uh, you, you basically had to be able to recognize a piece of Soviet equipment, uh, or East German equipment for that matter, uh, that was hidden by tall fallings. Yeah. So you'd get a flash of a, a little bit of a wheel or the end of the barrel or, or it might be whatever it may be. Okay. And, uh, you had to recognize that because inevitably on the, uh, on the flats, on the rail flats, yeah, the, a lot of the time the Soviets would cover their equipment. Okay. So you have to recognize what, what piece of it, <laughs> yeah, as we refer to it as a time. Wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And Corky would do well, records. Yeah. Yeah. And we used to have to do morning. Oh, was it every yeah. morning? Every morning. Yeah. Chief test. Chief test. Chief test. Corky can probably tell you about that, about yeah. recognition. We, we used to run a thing called Chief's test every morning. And then I think there was Corky and Corky once a week or once a month, there was an extended one that was even longer. Um, and it wasn't really to catch people out, although so that did happen occasionally. Yeah, it was. Um, but it, it was always uh, some good equipment, just saying, remember, this is what a T-55 is, for those that have forgotten those days, um, and this is what we're looking for on T-80s as they came through and things like that. Uh, and then there'll be other parts where you would just show perhaps the real lights and nothing else. Uh, which is where the typology part came in. Um, and uh, it, it was quite funny sometimes, you know, because, as I say, the aim was not to catch people out until I managed to catch myself out one day. Because being a bit vain, I had decided to stop wearing glasses and got myself contact lenses. And the very first chief's test that I ran with contact lenses on, I couldn't actually see the slides myself. <laughs> I had to walk up to the screen every couple of seconds. And see what it was that I had actually put up there. Um, but no, the chief, chief's test, you had to do well on it. And if you didn't do well, then it was noted. And you would be given some advice on how to improve your recognition techniques. Uh, and sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes that would mean stopping touring for a little while. But that, that was quite uncommon. Most people were really, really good. Um, and of course, the images that we were using were ones that were subsequently passed down to through Ryan Dallin and through what was then Jarek um, to be put into publications so that things like refugee troops and such like could use those same images. 
and they would be able to start recognizing equipment. Really, it was quite a useful exercise. The Jared book is over there on the table, and the chief test original slides called it. Uh, <laughs> somehow they've managed to appear. Uh, the chief slides uh, are over there as well um, from the actual chief test, so you could pick them up. They're on that day. We'll have a look through them. You'll see. I've taken Miss DDR out because it was Miss DDR test as well, and we used to have on the front taking her out. This DDR we didn't talk about because first of all. It was nearly always won by the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, of course, they had a better ride for various... Not the drivers. They used to bathe naked uh, in, in the East Germany, the, the, the Germans, and somehow managed to get into our photographs. <laughs> Pull that out. <laughs> We're not actually quite a funny story, actually. At the end, things were a bit more relaxed at the end, and uh, we went on a tour, and I can't remember who the tour officer was, but... They'd, they'd, they'd said, yeah, you can go in and swim now. And I think it was, it was, uh, can't remember who was swimming, but there's two of us and we went in and of course we were skinny dipping and they took pictures of us coming up, which we didn't realize. Yeah. And that was all over the board as well. So it set us up for that, but that was, that was unusual. I think, I think it was Mal Gidling that used to win several years of the tour, <laughs> actually. And I'm convinced to this day that their tours focused more on this DDR than anything that was actually flying at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, has anybody else got any questions that they'd like to know? So it's driving, it's driving qualifications, of course. We, uh, we have to go to Latin Fields, which is the uh, defence driving school. Actually, the attaching driving course, which lasted two uh, weeks, two weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. But uh, the funny thing there is, you had all, all the, the, the new drivers there in uniform and all that, and you get these uh, corporals coming in or whatever, just coming in in jeans and all that, and you, you just get stared at all the time, wondering what. No. Yeah. Who are these? Who are these people coming in? Uh, so we, we, we went and we did the, uh, the driving course for three weeks uh, on various different cars. Uh, we're doing fast driving. Uh, we got special permits from the school, and we were told to go somewhere. And uh, yes, we hit somewhere at Pacific time. And uh, it, you went with a crew. I know you were given kind of blanks, really, which way you went. Uh, I know one time we, we went from Lackenfields all the way to T-Bay, which is like near the frost country. And we asked to be there in a certain time. And with these cards, you were given exactly. exemption. Please, let me up what? Yeah, that was uh, one of the courses. Uh, the other course we had, we had to do, which was everyone that had to do, was before you joined Brixford. It was a four-week course down in Ashford. Um, we went and we had no recognition. Who uh, recognised the Soviet truck? By the end of the, the four weeks, you should recognize anything. That's, that's all the pink books you see over there, isn't it? You have to memorize every single photo, uh, piece of equipment. And uh, a piece of equipment, maybe just a basic one, but there's so many different variants. It could have, have a, an extra aerial on, so that'd be a variant. And you have to know all the different variants of that vehicle as well. Um, 
And that lasted four weeks. And that was and training. So yeah, when you get there though, wasn't it? Because yeah. they'd try and get pictures from the each side and the top, which is the fun bit, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because we got to chase after it. So we'd be parked up at night time at a railway side, but uh, a railway crossing where the barriers come down and they come down and go up, come down and go up in the flash. We've got a curry on in our pot, the rubber bits ready. And then, all right, there's a kick tray. Pack your curry away, put that down, by the side. Driver's like, where we go? We're going to get a good chase now, aren't we? And I've got one of the photographer's little measurement. Remember the little spot? Yeah, yeah. The map reading things over there, you can see. And it was a bit like rally driving. The Torrencio would then get his map, um, map out and that order. So they would then measure it on here and say, right, 0.2 Ks, you're going to turn right. We'd go bombing down the road. And um, once it's gone through, it's been obviously from the right hand side. Now we've got to get over the bridge to the other, or the road to the other side ahead of the train. So we're racing this train now <laughs> to get across the other crossing so we can get a picture from that. And then ideally, if you were lucky, you could get it to the top of a bridge. The like Dave saying, one little pint or one little different area meant it was a different, um, you know, uh, different variant of whatever it was. MTLVU was a common one and that and different armors on all the, on all the, T-72s and the T-80s at, at the time. So that was really, that was the best, most exciting yeah. stuff for us. The other thing that we used to have to do as well as drivers as well, on arrival at Brixmas, um, we were given another, I think it was two weeks in situ training. Uh, and that was basically uh, a simulation as to what you would come across. So for example, you would, you'd be told to go down in, in the place called the Grunewald, which was in there. Uh, Grunewald and Grunewald, uh, and it was basically a large forested area uh, in in Berlin. And you'd go down there and, and you would get bumped, if you like, jumped by your own people, of course. Yeah, and uh, it'd simulate, for example, the commandist, commandatura, yeah, who would, you know, I don't know, detain the vehicle to just to go through the processes. So you're pretty much in the know as to what, uh, you know, you should be doing. But as I say, when I went on my very first tour with the... Uh, Captain Tim Townley, bless him. Yeah, rest in peace, Tim, again. He, uh, I, I was straight in the middle of a Warsaw Pact uh, exercise, and I was out for about 12 days. I, I just couldn't believe it, seriously. I thought, literally, I thought that it was like this all the time. And of course it was. So, uh, yeah. The, the driver who was leaving, though, was Paul Bunks was leaving. I was coming, so he would take you out. And like Kev says, we were driving along, and he said, and he says, uh, is it, is it anything suspicious? I'm like, what? Because he just told me to drive down the woods and drive down the woods. And I said, no, there's another one of our wagons behind this. I went, well, what are you going to do? That's one of our wagons. I went, right, you're being followed. I said, oh, am I being, f- oh, it's a game, is it? So <laughs> we go. So we're being followed. I just come down. I used to, I was teaching close protection at the time. So I was quite good at uh, evasive driving J2s and brake turns. And I was a bit cheeky as well. I, was, I think I was the youngest by about seven or eight years when I was like, who's this guy coming here? Especially the RAF lads who were. I remember as well is that the uh, the tour senior NCO, they never let they never let an officer. Pardon me, Mike. Sorry, they never let an officer loose with a map. Yeah, it's just an army unwritten rule. Yeah, but a senior NCO, of course, and warrant officers included, um, was uh, given the task of map reading. And for example, it, it never amazed me. It never failed to amaze me the accuracy by which they knew areas that the senior NCO and you would never question. Yeah, a, a senior NCO, Torrid senior. If he said go left, you went left. Okay. And they, they, for example, you'd be in a wood and you'd drive on, I don't know, one side light or even with night vision goggles on, as we referred to earlier, uh, even the Mark 1s, 
and they'd be going right 10, 10 meters or 10 yards left. They used to have a trip master. So trip, yeah, 10 yards left again, left again, left again. And there you go. You have a nice little, nice little Z plats as we used to refer to it as. Yeah, which was where the, the guys used to get the kennel tents out and they stayed overnight and then stayed out overnight in luxury while we had to rough it in the G-Wagon. Um, yeah. So did, much... you, did you have more detailed maps then than that? Yes. They had the one in 50s, I believe. Like, they, 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 they had the one in 50,000 maps or one in 25,000? Yeah, 50,000. One in 50,000. If you were... You know, for doing a close target record. Yeah. Uh, but 150,000 was the main, was the main one. We had six handfold maps in the, in the vehicle, which covered basically the whole of East Germany. Yeah. Uh, and so you, uh, you just used those all the time. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. the way it's worth pointing out, Dave, but uh, you remember that the, 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 the way they were folded, they were concentrated. That's right. So you could follow east and west continuously on, on, on the map strips. And only when you get to the bottom, I mean, there's an old saw about all wars are fought at the corner of four map sheets uphill in the rain. Well, the, the, the maps in East Germany were not quite the same. The, uh, the, you were able to go east west very easily. And we had a bit of an overlap at the bottom and the top. So that when you went, went to the next strip, north or south, you, you were able to follow on. But, uh, but the, the beauty of being able to concentrate on the maps was that you weren't continually pulling sheets out of the bag. Yeah. You would take as many sheets as you needed. I don't know whether anybody's mentioned it, but there were three sectors in East Germany, rattily, after this, and involving people um, stirring up the, the opposition. And uh, you would know where you were going, so you would take the strips that applied to your particular task. But can, can I go back to recognition for a second, because there's some... Interesting little thing, little wrinkle in the late 80s that uh, some will remember. When the British Army and other Allied nations were introducing thermal imaging and uh, rangefinders and, and viewers in their armoured vehicles, and of course they, they hadn't seen Soviet or Warsaw packed vehicles through a thermal imaging scope before. So we were given in the mission um, a number of very, very large, very bulky, uh, and extraordinarily sensitive thermal imaging devices to take out, to obtain imagery of the, the Russian vehicles. Yeah. There was a bit of a problem with this. The first is that in those days, thermal imaging wasn't what you see today, where you could buy it off the shelf. They were fairly complex equipments, uh, and they had to be um, kept extremely cold, which meant you had liquid oxygen right. in, uh, in, in pressurized vessels which had to be attached to the equipment before you combed it to, to get the imagery. And but the, the larger concern for the tours, uh, and I'd like to echo everything that was said earlier about it being a team effort, and the larger concern, and the drivers are the unsung heroes of the mission, I think, but, but the larger concern of thermal imaging was that you could have nothing intervening between the sensor you, you were using and the equipment you were trying to image which meant that, that it was an absolute sin in the mission unless you were completely content that you were secure to have the windows in the vehicle down. Uh, so you can imagine we're on the edge of a training area or on a tactical route or the side of a road where we expect equipment to be moving. 
and we had to wind the windows down to image the equipment, which is relatively close. So there was a definite sense of unease about some of those missions. But we did get imagery that was that went on to be used um, at, at the Armored Corps Centre and elsewhere to train our crews on recognising Soviet equipments through thermal imagers. And my, my corporate won't remember much of that, I think. Yeah, because well, one, of the tour, one of the tours that I had done long, long before Richmond was at Jarrow. And the Orange Book that you referred to earlier, uh, they, they really used to produce those, so the earlier versions of them that time. And there's actually a huge debate about whether we could keep the classification of the Orange Book, which I think was restricted. Could we keep it down and still put in thermal imaging, images, white and white? Um, and in fact, possibly the, the debate went away when the war came down. Uh, because thermal imaging then became relatively common, just coincidentally, at the same times. Uh, I had been involved in that debate even before coming to Brixmas, because my previous posting uh, had been an embassy posting in the Near East, and we had been issued a thermal imager, uh, which was antiquated, quite frankly, compared to the ones that had come to the mission. And the end result was we were essentially told we could not out of the embassy. Um, so any engine was done had to be done from the roof of the embassy, which was totally impractical, of course. And we never, we never did anything with it at all. But the imaging was terribly, terribly sensitive, that, that type of imaging. The other thing about imaging was, of course, that some of the people in the mission had had experience of tactical and strategic imagery analysis. And particularly the in-court bodies that they were in there. Um, so they had looked, for example, at satellite imagery back in, let's say, the early 80s. And now, satellite imagery then, the resolution was relatively poor. But now they were looking at this stuff, first of all, on Stixent Company imagery, which was corridor imagery taken at that time by the Benbrook aircraft, which had all been written about in the, the books about the corridors. Um, and gradually we're working down to see a lot of these images taken by handheld on the ground. And the beauty was that realistically we could make that essentially up part of that. So if you were releasing images of things that had been seen perhaps 10 years before in central Russia and were known about by the DIS, but couldn't be talked about down to the troops on the ground essentially. Uh, and that was part of the importance of the handheld images from the mission, was that you could then start talking about these things they were seeing so many years later. But there was a trap, wasn't there, Mike, to, to the fact that the, uh, the, the tech section would know about equipments perhaps appearing that couldn't share that with the tourists. And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going to tell a story now about, um, I guess, myself. And it involves missile launchers. Hmm. Now, the, um, the tech in section had known, I think for some time, that the Russians were suspected of having introduced a new um, mobile missile missile system, the uh, SS-23. But they were not able to share that with tourists because they, they wanted to have uh, you know, a, a genuine encounter which would be decisive. Well, the only issue is 
we were very familiar with a, a system called the SS21, which was a three-axle, six-wheeled, uh, bird-shaped missile launcher. And on the occasion in question, I, I was sent with a, with a very capable team to an area in the south of the, the DVR, which was used quite routinely for, for missile troop de deployments. And suffice to say, to cut a long story short, uh, after a very cautious approach, we, we decided that we would, and again, let me, let me emphasize again something that was said earlier. To sit, Dave, I think, mentioned that he's absolutely spot on. All decisions in a tour crew were, were taken as a team, that there was no, um, there was no bullying or, or, or use of rank. And in fact, I mean, we, we always used to say that with a brigadier general in charge, often disappearing into the DDR for days at a time, with just two other people, he had the best command in the British Army because he was completely free of concerns and communications. Anyway, back to the missile launchers. We, we had decided that, having checked that both ends of this area, which is a wooded area, with a, a tactical trail winding through, were free of sentries, we would give it a shot and, and drive straight. We, we knew there was activity, we heard activity, including um, the horn that, that we knew from experience signaled the erection of, of a missile launching rail on, on these things. So we decided that we, we'd take a run right through the area, nice and gently, don't excite people, they might not notice <laughs> you're not Russian. And we got almost all the way through and saw this missile launcher and a couple of others to one side. The great imagery, which was just all well and good, I'll, I'll go into that in a second. Um, but came to a, a winding curve in the in the trail, which was full of water. And not unreasonably, our driver, and I won't mention his name, um, decided that the best place to, to, to take the turn was on the outside. Well, unfortunately, it was the same turn all Russians had decided they'd take during the week. And we got stuck in, in this turn, despite the best efforts of the vehicle and the driver. Water up to the up to the windows very nearly. Um, surrounded almost immediately by some very excitable Russians uh, who had to be persuaded to lower their weapons. But in any event, you know, we, we were happy with gun imagery and, and they were good enough to back up to the vehicle to make sure we could get out. Um, uh, a, a low truck with a missile warhead box on the back with all the designators, which, which was something we were very keen to, to, to get. I mean, it told us exactly what it was, where it was, where it to come from. Anyway, out of the area, with the imagery, very excited, got on the phone, which we could do. We could call the mission house and, and pass on information. Um, I told them we, we, we thought we had something interesting. Anyway, come back, photographs are on the desk, debriefing, we got SS-21. And it wasn't for a couple of days that somebody looked at them again and said, but hang on, SS-21 has three axles, this has four. And we're going to leave you on that cliffhanger to find out exactly what Mike has discovered. Do tune in next week. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. 
The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.